series uh, on preparing the soil. And so uh, the sermon will begin this morning and I will finish the sermon this evening. We just prepared so much stuff that I couldn't get it all into one sermon without keeping you here till two o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, we're going to begin this morning and and uh, finish this evening. We'll read responsively from verse four through verse 15, verse four through verse 15. I'll begin in verse four and read the even numbered verses and then we'll read uh, the odd numbered verses Together, Jared, if you just give me just a little more volume on my mic, I'd appreciate that. Verse four. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trodden down and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And others, other fell on good ground and sprang up and bear fruit in hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, But to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Been looking at uh, this series rooted in Christ and talking about preparing the soil of our heart. And today we're going to look at the productive soil, the productive soil. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we uh, this morning and this evening dive into these truths. Help us, Lord, to be moved by your word and the preaching of your word. Lord, may the heart, may our hearts not be hardened, but be tender and receptive. Lord, may we deal with past sins and habitual sins that limit spiritual growth. Lord, may we remove the thorns and thistles of cares, riches, and pleasures of life. And Lord, may we have a soil that is ready to be productive. Lord, where you make it clear amongst us today that changes need to be made so that, Lord, we can bear fruit for the Savior, for the kingdom of heaven. Lord, would you uh, allow us to be sincere in making those changes and leave here with a plan to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask all of this in your most precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. By the way, I just want to say before I get into the sermon here, pray for our church family. Uh, We have a whole lot of people that have been sick this week and a whole lot of people out today because of sickness. And I didn't give a list today because the list would have been like 20 people long. And uh, it's been going around the church. How many of you this week at some point, you or your family has been affected by some sort of sickness? Would you just hold up your hand for me? Look at the, look at the hands. And there's a whole lot more that aren't here today because they caught it later. And I don't think it's just going around our church. We do clean the building, by the way. 
every week, and uh, we clean it very carefully and thoroughly. I don't think it's just our church. I think it's just going around everywhere. And uh, I'm not a doctor or a scientist or anything, but I'm just curious if it being, you know, like two below one day and 60 degrees the next day, if that has something to do with uh, people getting sick. Uh, uh, that might that might be an old wives' tale. I don't know. But um, nonetheless, uh, pray for people as they're dealing with uh, various sicknesses and some of you today are feeling a little under the weather. I'll give this piece of advice out. Uh, if you shake hands, go wash your hands before you get too far down the road, all right? How many of you have hand sanitizer in your purse or in your pocket? Can you not be stingy and share? Could you do that? Share with the people around you? Um, uh, it's cheap. And if you run out and you don't have any money, I'll buy you, I'll buy you some more, okay? But, uh, but share. Uh, uh, let's be generous in sharing that. Let me ask a question this morning, and it's a rhetorical question, but you can answer in your mind. What is the cycle of life? The cycle of life. We're born, right? Uh, then we get to the wonderful age of somewhere between 11 and 14, 15, and we go through puberty. And it's funny to watch a, a teenager or a, a preteen go through that because there's just a lot of awkwardness, right? And the body's got all kinds of chemicals and hormones it's trying to balance and you know, the teeth are bigger, uh, disproportionate to the face, and you got acne everywhere, and you know, boys' voice starting to squeak, and uh, boys, you know, in the fourth grade, they deny they've got a crush, but in the seventh grade, they start making awkward advances on the other gender, and, and then you look at a, a sixth grade class, and, you know, most girls, they shoot up in height in like the fifth and sixth grade. And the boys don't start growing until they're like the seventh or eighth grade. And so you look at like a fifth or sixth grade class and the girls are all way taller than the boys. And they're also usually way more mature than the boys. And um, uh, so what's the cycle of life? Well, you go through that and then your body is preparing, isn't it, for reproduction. And then you have the adult life where you get married, ideally you follow the, the, the biblical model, and God uh, allows you to have children, whether you're a father or a mother, if that's uh, the path that God puts you on. That's not God's plan for everybody, but we know that that is the, uh, God's plan ultimately for humanity. And uh, you have your reproduction years, and you, uh, you give birth to two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If you're the Duggar family, 28 children, uh, and uh, you, you have all these children, right? And then you, you go through raising them, and then you get past the reproduction years, and you uh, get more into the golden years, where I talked to an elderly couple last night who've been in our church almost since its inception, and still strong, going strong, love the Lord, and Fourth quarter type Christians, just really serving the Lord and loving God. And at our uh, Valentine banquet last night, we had a time of prayer where the husbands and wives prayed to each other. And this couple came to me after the banquet and they said, Pastor, while we did pray for our marriage, we spent the majority of the time praying for the marriage of our children. And uh, that we want their marriages to be strong. You get into those golden years and you, um, uh, you live that out and then you, uh, you head on into eternity. So that's the cycle of life. You're born and um, uh, God may give you a chance to uh, reproduce life. You raise those children and teach them and instill in the morals and values. And then uh, off you go. So again, you're born, you reproduce. You train up the next generation and then off the scene and that whole thing happens again. What is the cycle of a tree? Again, another rhetorical question here, right? Cycle of a tree. A seed is planted 
And then it has time where it grows and it matures. And if it's a fruit tree, it will eventually develop into a a tree of maturity where it can produce fruit. And then some of that uh, uh, fruit is picked off of that tree and uh, consumed. Other uh, uh, fruit of that tree may fall off the tree and roll away from the tree. And some of those seeds from that fruit could land down in the soil. And that tree goes to a very similar cycle that we go through as humans. It's born, it, it grows, it has a time of reproduction, and then eventually a tree will age and eventually die. How about the cycle of a Christian? The cycle of a Christian. You see, the cycle of a Christian is very similar. Now, I want to just say this before I give you the cycle of a Christian is that if we don't follow this cycle as a whole, churches will cease to exist. Just like if humanity stops having babies, humanity will cease to exist. And if trees stop, trees stop producing seeds inside of fruit, trees will cease Fruit trees will cease to exist. There must be a system where we're born and we're raised and we reproduce. And that is no different for Christianity, for Christianity. So what is the cycle of Christianity? Well, we receive salvation. We receive salvation. We follow the Lord in believers baptism. And uh, we'll see. Actually, we have someone lined up to get baptized today, so we'll get to see that happen. And that is that first step uh, of obedience. After you've been saved, you put your faith and trust in Christ. You've been born again, as John three describes it. First uh, Peter describes it the same way: born anew. Uh, once you've received salvation, you follow the Lord in that first step of obedience, of believer's baptism. Then, what is the next step? Well, you grow in your knowledge of the Word of God. So, just like a child is born and then he grows up, there must be a time where you are born anew in the family of God and then you have that time of spiritual growth where you're developing in the Lord and you're learning the doctrines of the Bible. You're learning uh, how to live the Christian life. You're, you're, you're being developed. To use the, uh, the theme of our church this year, you're putting your roots downward so that your sprout or your tree uh, branch can grow upward. That vine maybe can develop upward and so there's the downward growth of the roots so that you can have the upward production. And then what do you do next? Well, then you begin to produce fruit. Begin to produce fruit. That's the end goal of a Christian, isn't it? The end goal of the Christian isn't just come sit on a comfortable pew and listen to a 30, uh, 40 minute sermon a week and then get up and go live your life like everybody else in the world does. That's not the goal of the Christian. The goal of the Christian is to uh, be productive for the Lord. And we're going to talk about that, especially at length this evening. But uh, the, the, the goal of the Christian ought to be that you turn around and you tell somebody else the wonderful news of what Jesus did for you and he saved you so that somebody else wants to accept. The free gift of salvation, they can be born into God's family. Then what do you do? You take them and you help them get baptized and you help them get discipled. Then you encourage them to disciple somebody and then you encourage them to share the good news of salvation. And the cycle continues. Uh, Years ago, I saw uh, what would happen if one person took the gospel and shared that with someone and got them to trust Christ as their savior. 
and then uh, and then got them baptized and then discipled them. And then those two went out and got two more. And then those four went out and got four more. And then those um, uh, uh, those eight went out and got eight more. And if you were to do that and you were to give about a year long process with that in the matter of a hundred years, the entire population would be reached. With the gospel of Jesus Christ as that number doubles really, really quick. So that is the goal of the Christian. That is the goal of the Christian. Now, we have been talking about the soil of the heart. Brother Jared, throw that slide up there for me. And we've looked at the four different soils laid out here. Now, just as a quick refresher, especially for those who haven't been here uh, for the rest of the series, to kind of get you caught up to speed, in Luke 8, Jesus is speaking to a, uh, a crowd that has gathered. Some of them are true disciples, and other people are there to find a hole in what he's saying, to exploit, to make fun of him, to discredit him, and put him him down. And so what Jesus would do when he's speaking to crowds like this is he would speak in parables. He would make up a story and he would tell that story. And inside that story was the truth he was trying to drive home. And what he was doing was those that were spiritually minded, that dwelled on it long enough, they would be able to figure out the meaning of the story, and those that weren't wouldn't. And so Jesus would speak in a lot of illustrations or parables. And so he tells a story about a sower, or rather a farmer, who went out into his field, and he reached down into his satchel of seed he had on his hip, and he grabbed hold of that seed, and he slung it out on the field, and some of that seed landed by the wayside, Luke 8 uh, tells us, and it landed on the dirt road. And that soil was compacted down. It has, it was, uh, it was hardened soil and the seeds honestly had no chance of ever getting into the soil. And then, uh, there was more seed that landed on a soil that had, uh, accumulated on some rocks. And so that seed went down in the soil really quick, but because there was no room for that seed to develop a root system, the sun came out and scorched the plant when it was really young. And then other seeds landed in what ended up being a a thorn patch or a briar patch, and the thorns and the thistles grew up around the the tree and and, and choked it out. And uh, some of the seeds landed on soil that ended up being very productive. So we've said that the seed is the Word of God. What is the seed? It's the Bible. It's God's truth. It's truth. And the farmer is the preacher or one who administrates the truth. Now, that's me. Obviously, right now, I'm doing this very thing. I'm being the farmer. I'm taking the Bible, and I will over the next few minutes, and I will throw seed out into the soil. But that isn't just me. That should be all of us. You put your faith and trust in Jesus. You are to share the good news of Jesus with the world around you. That's not just my responsibility. It's not just the other assistant pastor's responsibility. It isn't just the deacon or the Sunday school teacher's responsibility. If you've asked Jesus to come in your heart, you're to do your part in sharing the good news with the world. So the seed is God's word. The the farmer or the sower is the one that gives out God's word. And the soil is the condition of our heart. The condition of our heart. Now this year, if we're going to produce fruit for the Savior... We must first make sure the soil of our heart is in good shape. Last Sunday night, we talked about having a hard heart. We looked at Hosea that says, breaking, it talks about breaking up the hardened soil or the fallow ground. 
We talked about that at length and not allowing that soil of our heart to become a hard pan soil or just a dry, crusty soil, but a soil that's able to be productive. Now, we've spent the last three weeks focusing in on the path, petrified and prickly soil. This week, we're going to focus in uh, in Jesus's parable and teaching about the productive soil. We're going to look at this uh, really closely. Let me ask you a question here. How were uh, how were the disciples? Able to accomplish so much with the gospel in their lifetimes. You all know what happened, right? Jesus ascended to heaven. He sent his disciples out to be the farmers that threw out the seed of the Bible. And what happened? The, the, the early church exploded. Many historians believe the first church had over 100,000 people that attended it. A huge church. And then the disciples were persecuted there. So the Christians left and they went all over the known civilized world. And it was said by non-Christians that these Christians, they turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you what happened? A spiritual revolution is what happened. Have you noticed the revolution going on in our country today? It's not good, is it? Sin abounds. You tried holding to a staunchly biblical position And you are going to get hated on by people who are ushering in this new revolution. It doesn't even matter if you have a nice disposition about you. They just don't like you. They they hate where you stand. If you are a Christian, they don't like you. I made this point to someone yesterday. Have you noticed the phobias that uh, have come out? Um, What what is someone who hates Muslims called? Islamophobic or Islamophobia. Uh, and I don't think you ought to hate anybody, by the way, including Muslims. All right. Uh, what, what is it called if you hate Jews? You're an anti-Semite. Right. Have you noticed there's no phrase for people that hate on Christians? There's not a phrase. I've never heard of uh, Christ phobia or Christian phobia. You know why? Because it's totally fine to bash on Christians. They don't care about us. If you want a hold of this book, you're going to get hated. Now. I have preacher friends and I have Christian friends who think, oh, we're done. Time to pack up shop and go home. America's never coming back. America's too far gone. You know what? Uh, There's a story about a guy who uh, was a shoe salesman. He went to Africa and he got there and no one in that particular rural area wore shoes. And he called back to headquarters and he said, nobody here wears shoes. I'm sending the shipment back. I'm coming home. Another man showed up in Africa a week later from another shoe company And he called headquarters and he said, send five more shipments of shoes. Nobody wears shoes. We're going to make a fortune. We can look at how dark the world is becoming and we can say that it's time to pack up shop and go home. Or we can say this, the worse off our society gets and the worse off our culture gets, the more opportunity we have to shine our light bright for the Lord. The more opportunity there is to turn America back toward God and bring the people of this country back to its Judeo-Christian roots. Why were these disciples of Christ able to accomplish so much for the kingdom of God in their lifetime? The answer really is simple. Their hearts, the soil of their heart, while it was not perfect, it had been properly prepared to produce abundant fruit. There's a saying that's gone around, and I believe this is common in the military, but I've heard it other places. Here it is. Proper prior planning prevents poor performance. Prior proper planning prevents 
poor performance. Um, Do you know God can't use you to be productive if you're not willing to do the preparation? You're not willing to put in the work. Now, this morning, I want to focus in on two main truths out of uh, our passage here. And this evening, we're going to look at two more truths and talk about this idea of having a heart that produces for the Lord or having productive soil. Let's jump into this morning and notice, number one, a prepared soil, a prepared soil. Look down at Luke chapter 8 and verse 8 with me again. Luke chapter 8, verse 8. Let me just say this while you're uh, uh, finding that in your, in your Bible there. I really, as your preacher, don't want to just give you theory that doesn't get lived. My duty as a pastor, my job as a pastor, is to take the truths off the pages of the Bible and get them to where you live them in your life. Right? If we're just getting together for an hour and 15 minutes every week to sing and hear Christian theory, so what? Um, how many of you here took Spanish or, or French in high school? Hold them up. All right, keep your hand up if you can now speak Spanish and French fluently. Okay, if your hand is up, did you have a place to practice? You did, didn't you? Well, Maria, you spoke Spanish when you took it in school, right? It didn't count. Maria grew up speaking Spanish. Sherry, did you have a place to practice it, work on it? Yeah, yeah. You know, if you go take music theory or a language class and you go in and you do the academic work, but you don't put it in practice, you're not going to learn the language. You're not going to actually learn music. You can show up to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and you can listen to me talk about Christian theory. But if you don't go out there and practice it, you're not going to be a good Christian. You understand that? What I'm trying to do in 2019 is give you a thought progression that takes you from being an unproductive Christian to being a productive Christian. But if you show up week after week and you hear, but you don't go out and do... You're going to be in the same place this time next year. And so we've got to we've got to commit to leave here and make real changes of prepared soil. Look at verse eight. Look there. Can we read the first uh, six words out loud together? Here we go. And other fell on good ground. Other fell on good ground. Now, again, the seed that lands in the soil is the word of God. The seed of verse eight did not fall on the rocks The seed here in this verse, verse 8, it did not fall on shallow soil. The seed here in verse 8, it did not fall into the midst of a briar patch. Instead, this seed found its way into soil that had been properly prepared and groomed and tilled and cleaned up. And this soil was ready. It was called good ground. It was soil that was prepared. It was soil that had been Fertilized. It was soil that was rich in nutrients. In, in order for the Christian's heart to produce fruit, the Christian should have a heart that is rich in some godly nutrients. The Christian's heart should be rich in letter A, righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, uh, can you turn over to Philippians chapter 1, verse number 11 for me? Philippians 1, 11. If you're in Luke, it's just a few books over to your right. Uh, you get to Acts, Romans, and then you got First and Second Corinthians, and you have Galatians, Ephesians, 
Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. And uh, look with down with me at verse number 11. And this is one of the places in the Bible where God talks about the fruit of a Christian. The fruit that is produced in a Christian. And if we're going to produce for the Lord, we have to have a soil that is rich. Look here, Philippians 1.11. But being filled with the fruits, look here of the words, the preposition of righteousness. So part of the nutrients that is growing this fruit is a soil that is rich in righteousness. Do you know that when you eat an apple, what you're really eating is sunlight? You understand that? The sun comes down and the soil takes the water and it takes the sunlight and it puts it together. I believe that's called photosynthesis. Someone want to shake their head yes or no at me? Okay, give me one of these, maybes. Okay, you guys don't know, do you? And those that do know are too shy to speak up. Yeah, I believe that's called photosynthesis. But when you eat fruit, what you're really eating is the sunlight, all right, that's been taken into the soil and has been turned into uh, uh, glucose. Or, or, or I'm going I'm to leave the scientific words alone. Okay, turns into some form of sugar, sends it up the branch, and there you got your fruit, right? That, that's made. And so we've got to have a soil that's ready. Now we talked about this last Sunday night, but you can deplete. Soil, and you can run it where there are no microbes down in that soil to send up. And you've got to have a, a soil that is rich in righteousness to produce the fruit. Now, that word righteousness is a big word. It is a word that isn't really used outside of, uh, of church talk or Bible talk. But can I just make that word really simple for you? That word righteousness, what it means is this. It means right doing. Right doing. I'm about to get super practical on you here, okay? Let's turn that around. Doing right. You know what righteousness is? It's just doing right. Yeah, it's doing right while you're at church. It's also doing right when you're sitting on the couch with the TV on. It's doing right uh, while you're in your Sunday school class and, uh, and all that. It's also doing right when you're in the break room at work and your pastor and deacons and church members aren't standing over your shoulder. Doing right, yeah, sure, it's... When you are with your family and you're opening the Bible or you're praying before a meal. But it's also doing right uh, when you're out with your friends and, and your friends don't go to church. It's also while you're on your cell phone and no one's watching you. Righteousness. Is the soil of your heart prepared? Is it rich in righteousness? Um, how does a child learn how to walk? I love babies. If you've ever seen me around a baby, you know that I just love babies. All right. Uh, my wife had two cesareans, and they were very rough on her. And after the second one, she looked at me and she said, I want to have more, but I can't have more. And it crushed me. It just crushed me. And I, look, they go through that, not me, and so I respect the wishes, okay? But I love being around babies. I'm the oldest of seven, and so my mom had twins when I was 13, and so I got to help raise them, and and uh, and and you all are having babies, and so I get to hold them, and then when they start crying, give them back to you so that you can take care of them. It's great, right? So it's kind of the best of both worlds right now, and I love babies, and I love watching how babies develop. Uh, how does the baby learn how to walk? Well, first, that baby crawls up uh, to, so well, first he learns how to crawl. Then they'll crawl up to a table or a couch and they pull themselves up. And then you can see the legs lob, wobbling, right? Legs wobbling. And then they let go and they're just kind of standing there, right? And they fall. And that's why they pad diapers so much, right? To protect that fall. And, um, and then eventually they get 
bold enough and, and, and risky enough to, to take that first step and, and then, you know, face plan on the ground. And I remember watching my kids learn how to walk. We actually had carpet back then. That was back when carpet was a thing. Everything's hardwood now. But uh, we had carpet. And he would uh, he must have face planted in that carpet more times than I could count. These boys are synonymous with bumps and probably babies are in general. But they, they, what is walking? Walking is controlled falling, is it not? It's learning how to put one step, one foot in front of the other. And control yourself so you don't fall. You know what righteous living is? It's putting one foot in front of the other and saying, I'm going to say yes to doing right and no to doing wrong. And I'm going to do it again and again and again and again. And when I fall, like the Bible says, a just man, what does he do? He gets up. He gets up. Righteousness. Be honest with yourself right now. The soil of your heart, is it righteous? Is it mediocre? Is it mix of righteousness and sin? Or is it just flat out lacking righteousness? Letter I, notice integrity. Integrity. Luke chapter 8, verse 15. Look down there with me at Luke eight fifteen. It says, but that on the good ground are they, look here, which in an honest and good heart, an honest and good heart. Jesus explains that the quality that makes the spiritual soil rich in verse 15 is that it is rich in honesty or integrity. Now, we have a Bible filled with stories. And these stories tell about people who, for the most part, did right and then people who, for the most part, did wrong. And even the people that did right, uh, uh, truthfully, all of them had moments in their life where they made mistakes and they chose the wrong path. But if you were to take these people's lives and you were to look at them really close in the Bible, what you found find is that they uh, lived a life of integrity, the ones that did what was right. Now, uh, it is important for all of us to do right, but, but especially considering that we have a generation of children and youth coming up behind us and they're watching you. Very closely. That, By the way, that's if you have children and if you don't have children. No man lives to himself, the Bible says, and no man dies to himself. We all uh, have an impact on the world around us. But if you have children at home, your life is under a microscope. You're being watched in every way. And if you're not integritous, your children are taking note. And trust me, your actions preach a much louder and persuasive sermon than this Bible does. You be careful about that. Is the soil of your heart rich in integrity? Dictionary.com defines the word integrity this way. Adherence to moral and ethical principles. Soundness of moral character. Honesty. Honesty. When you uh, back out of your parking spot and you scrape the car next to you, you leaving a note under that guy's windshield with your number on it? Or you're pulling away and making sure nobody saw? Those of you that go hunting, you shoot a animal that is out of season. Maybe you even did it on accident. Are you tracking down the game ward and told them about what you did? You take your kid out fishing. Did you get a fishing license? Or are you just hoping you don't get caught? Mom and dad, are you doing things with your kids behind the other one, uh, the other spouse's back and saying, don't tell your mom about this. 
Don't tell your dad about this. Now, I know that can be done in a playful way, but it should never be done in a sinful way. It's integrity. It's willingness to do what's right, even when there's consequences that you must face in doing what's right. Letter C, notice the third characteristic of a, a soil that is rich is charity. Charity. I have to move quick here. First John four, seven and eight says this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. We're commanded to love each other and we're commanded to show charity toward one another. I love first Corinthians 13 in the King James Bible because it chooses the word charity over love. You understand that charity and love are not the same thing. Love is a more uh, a concise version of charity, or rather charity is a more concise version of love. Charity is showing compassion to someone that maybe has had to do without. Charity is giving of your abundance to someone that's lacking. Charity involves taking pity on someone that is lacking. One of the reasons why I am proud to be an American is how much money we send out to the rest of the world when they're going through times of hardship. And I'm not talking about what our government sins. I'm talking about money that we as uh, citizens and individuals send to other countries that are going to tough times. America is a very benevolent country. And as Christians, we're commanded to be benevolent and show charity to others. Is your natural reflex charity or is it to be selfish? Uh, First Corinthians 13 tells us at the end of the chapter, now abideth these three faith, hope and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. Charity, having a heart that is rich in righteousness, having a heart that is rich in integrity, having a heart that is rich in charity. Letter H, notice holiness, having a heart that is rich in holiness. Let me give you a definition for holiness here. And uh, you can jot this down if you're taking notes this morning. Holiness means to be set apart for a sacred cause or purpose. To be set apart for a sacred cause or purpose. Holiness. Do you know what the modern church lacks today? Lacks holiness. You know what the average church-going Christian lacks today? It's holiness. My brother's a missionary to Honduras, and um, he was staying with my... Uh, with, I'll just... I'll be generic here. Same with a relative of mine in Michigan. And my relative goes to a very modern, uh, very, very contemporary church. I'm talking about like like long-haired, head-banging, hard rock concert before the sermon type church. And they have, they have thrown out basically, they basically throw in, thrown holiness out of the church. Um, it is more of a country club than a church, to tell you the truth. And the sermon boils down to the pastor getting up there. And I'm not going to make fun of the way he dresses because uh, I don't think it really matters how you dress. I, 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 I'm going to I'm going to wear my Sunday best. And uh, but uh, I don't know the Bible takes a stance on how he dressed when we go to church real, real strong. But he gets up there and he's dressed real casual. He's got his cup of coffee in his hand. He gets up there and he sits on a stool behind a glass pulpit. And, and he, he just talks to the church like he's in their living room. And, uh, and he uses all kinds of worldly examples. And, and uh, my brother went to the church and he said, Richard, it's, it's almost like he's up there giving a TED Talk. And he just throws a Bible verse in there. He said, that's what it's like. 
And um, he got into a discussion with my relative and um, and my my relative was just saying, well, that's not in the New Testament. That's not in the New Testament. Finally, my brother looked at her and he said, you know what is in the New Testament? Holiness is in the New Testament. Holiness is in the New Testament. The Bible tells us in First Timothy in the last days that people are going to keep to themselves teachers having itching ears. That means that uh, the, the mega churches in the last days are going to be churches where the pastor will not get up and preach against sin. Will not do it. No, I think there's a right and wrong way to preach against sin. I'm not going to get up here and make anybody feel like an idiot, make anyone feel like they're less of a human because they struggle with something in particular. Uh, but I do think that we, we as, a chur- as churches, we need to take a stand uh, against sin and talk about the Christian being peculiar. Turn over to Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Now, background on Titus. Titus was a missionary to the island of Crete, and when he got there, Crete was steeped in uh, all sorts of, uh, of, of sin and, uh, and wickedness. In fact, it was said of Crete that they had a culture of lying, and everyone was proud of the lying culture. People loved their lying. They loved to brag on lying. So they had, they had to deal with an integrity issue there on the island. And Paul sent Titus there because even the churches had become corrupt. And Titus was to go around the island and get the churches back going the right direction. Titus 2.14 says, who gave, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Look here, from all iniquity. And look here, purify unto himself a peculiar or odd people, zealous of good works, zealous of good works, all iniquity. Uh, uh, look here, uh, Purify peculiar people. God wants the Christian not to look like the world, smell like the world, talk like the world, dress like the world. He wants the church to look, smell, talk, act different than the world. He wants the church and those who are saved to live a life of holiness. Now, if your soil is not rich in righteousness, integrity, charity and holiness, you have no chance of producing fruit for the Lord. Number one, the uh, a prepared soil. I'd ask you this morning, is your heart prepared to produce for the Lord? Letter uh, number two, notice the protected seed, the protected seed. And I want to take just a few moments out of the message this morning and really talk about the importance of why we prepare our soil. You know why it is that your soil needs to be kept rich? Your soul needs to be kept rich because you have the eternal word of God being slung onto it. Every time you come to church and hear the Bible preached, every time you sit down in your house and you open the Bible and read it, every time you memorize the Bible verse, every time you meditate on a biblical truth, that is seed that is going down in the soil of your heart. And that seed, my friend, it is special. It's important. It's a big deal. It is, it is eternal. It is God's Word. And it will revolutionize and change your life for the better. Look at Luke 8.15. The Bible says, But that on good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart. Look here. Having heard the Word, keep it. Underline those two words in your Bible if you mark your Bible. Keep it. They keep it. Notice that the Christian that bears fruit for Christ 
keeps or treasures or protects the word of God. He keeps it. He protects it. He values it. It is valuable to him. He treats his time with the Bible as the most important time of his life. Let me give you two reasons why. Because the word of God is precious. It's precious. Let me read for you Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. It says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Look here. He that goeth forth in weeping, bearing precious seed, precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him, or his abundance from his labor with him. Now, these verses in Psalm 126, contextually, they line up perfect with our, uh, our messages, our series in Luke 8. Here the psalmist is talking about a sower sowing the seed of the word of God. Uh, for now, let's observe the first. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, let's observe that verse six of Psalm 126 labels the word of God as seed, and he calls that seed precious. Now, how do you handle the word of God? How do you handle it? There's a phrase that's uh, been around for years. And if you have had a long-term relationship, you know this phrase. And you've experienced this phrase. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. My wife was away working um, uh, the last two days. And I was in the thrown into the midst of being a... What do you call that? A stay-at-home dad. And taking care of the kids. And I had to cook. Can I tell you, it was a disaster. I made spaghetti. And I've made spaghetti before and I did a great job with it. But I forgot how much water to put with the tomato paste. And uh, it was like a soup. It was like a soup. And my kids are sitting there and they're looking at it like, Is this dinner? You know what? Um, there are times in my 11 years of marriage where I become very familiar with Angela and what she does around the house. And I, I, I really don't value it very much. I don't appreciate it like I ought to. You know, I just expect on, on Monday morning, tomorrow morning when I wake up, that I'm going to open my closet and one of my dress shirts that I wear to work are going to be hanging there ironed. I just expect it. Because it's been that way for 11 years. It just has been. I expect to open my underwear drawer and there's underwear. It's just, it's just how it is. I expect to come home at night and dinner's on the table. And the kids are, you know, they still have all four limbs and they're healthy. Right? I just expect that. But let her go away for a couple of days and make me do those things. And oh man, boy, I value her. She becomes more precious to me. You know, Christians, I really believe that we have gotten so used to owning a Bible, so used to biblical preaching, that it has stopped to, it has ceased to be precious to us anymore. I would ask you this Do you love your Bible? Do you treasure your Bible? A couple nights ago, I was laying in my bed and I looked over and I had a Bible in my nightstand and some books had got laid on top of it. 
And I was like half asleep. And I thought, that Bible can't sit on the bottom of that stack of books. The Bible is the most important book. So I got out of my bed and I took the Bible off the top and I laid it on top of the stack. You say, oh, you're being weird. No, I value the Bible. I cherish the Bible. Sometime back, uh, this Bible that I'm holding here, I've owned this Bible for a few years now. Pages started to, to fall out because I've just used it so much. And so I ordered a new Bible. Can I tell you that I've hardly used that new Bible? Because I have such a strong relationship with this one. I love it. I've hugged this book. I've wept over this book. I've kissed this book. You say, that's strange. And you may see it that way. And someone outside of church may see it that way. But I just have to tell you, I love the Bible. It's precious to me. Every time that you read the Bible and God moves in your heart, it should be precious. Every time a sermon is preached from it and God stirs your heart, it should be precious. You should read it day and night. You should meditate or mentally chew on it, even when it isn't in front of you. You should memorize it. You should work hard to hide it in your heart. You should take careful notes during preaching time so you can go back and review those notes later and grow deeper in your knowledge of God and allow Him to stir in your spirit to make changes in even a more profound uh, 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 level. You should enter your Sunday school class and each church service with a prepared heart to grow because uh, you're not showing up to church to hear some expert speak on anything. You're showing up to church to hear the Word of God held high and heralded and preached so it can move you and profoundly change you. White Oak Baptist Church is not about a personality, mine or any Sunday school teacher. White Oak Baptist Church is about taking the Word of God and allowing it to fundamentally change who we are. We should treat its pages with respect and care. Why? Because it is a precious Word. There was an article written some time back about the Bible. It says this, it says, Anatoly, we'll just call him Anatoly because he's got a very difficult last name pronounced. He was a dissident Soviet Jew. Dissident meaning he had converted to Christianity. He kissed his wife goodbye as she left Russia for freedom in Israel. His parting words to her were, I'll see you soon in Jerusalem. But Anatoly was detained and finally imprisoned. Their reunion in Jerusalem would not only be postponed, it might never occur. During long years in Russian prisons and work camps, Anatoly was stripped of his personal belongings. His only possession that he managed to hold on to was a miniature copy of the Psalms. Once during his imprisonment, his refusal to release the book of his own free will to the authorities cost him 130 days in solitary confinement. Finally, 12 years after parting with his wife, he was offered freedom. In February of 1986, as the world watched, Anatoly was allowed to walk away from Russian guards towards those that would take him to Jerusalem. But in the final moments of captivity, the guards tried again to confiscate the psalm book. Anatoly threw himself down in the snow and refused to walk on to freedom without it. Those words had kept him alive during imprisonment. He would not go on to freedom without them. 
valuable things are generally not valued until they are stripped away, then we realize just how important they should have been to us. Do you know that God could take your vision at any moment? You'd never read the Bible again. I don't want to use fear or strike fear in anybody's heart, but I do wonder if in the next 50 or 60 years, our country will move to a place of intolerance toward the Bible where God's word is banned and outlawed like it is in other places around the world, both physically and electronically. Value the Bible. It is a precious seed. It is thrown into the soil of our heart. And you say, Pastor, how do I value the Bible? Keep your heart rich so that when it's thrown out, your heart will be ready to receive God's word and it can produce a, a profound change. Uh, God's word is 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 precious. God's word is powerful. It is powerful. Hebrews four twelve says, "For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart." We should keep the seed or uh, we should keep the seed or protect the seed because it is power it, it, it because of its powerful ability to change our lives one author put it this way he said the book is the mind of god the state of man the way of salvation the doom of sinners and the happiness of believers its doctrines are holy its precepts are binding its histories are true and its decisions are immutable read it to be wise believe it to be safe practice it to be holy it contains light to direct you food to support you and comfort to cheer you it is the traveler's map the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven open, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, read it frequently, read it Prayerfully, it is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, the glory itself for all of eternity. What a powerful book. It is powerful. Amen? Why is it powerful? Well, let me give you two more reasons and we'll shut it down today. It is powerful because it is eternal. It is powerful because it's eternal. Psalm 119.89 says this, Forever, O Lord, thy word is established in heaven. Let me give you uh, what that word forever means, because this, this blew me away when I looked this up. All right, That word forever, it, it means this. It means, it means having no end and having an ancient beginning. Having no end... And having an ancient beginning. Do you know that God, that God finished the last word of Revelation 22 before He ever spoke the first word of Genesis 1-1? God finished the last word of Revelation 22 before He spoke the first words in Genesis 1-1. You say, well, how does that work? I thought man made their own choices. Well, see, God is eternal. He exists outside the realm of time. So he went to the end of time and he saw how the whole thing would play out. He came back to the beginning of time. He injected himself into the mix, saw how that would play out. And then he wrote an entire book about it. The word of God is eternal. 
It is powerful because it is eternal. Thy word, O Lord, is established forever in heaven. It is powerful because it is esteemed. I'll finish with this. It is esteemed. I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 138, if you would. And we'll finish here. Psalm 138 and verse number 2. Boy, as Christians, we go through life with a a, a heart, a, a soil of our heart, and it, it doesn't really receive the Word of God well, and that seed is powerful, it's precious, it can make a change, it can cause us to produce. And the reason why we don't produce has nothing to do with the seed, it has everything to do with are we ready to receive the seed. And I'm trying to convince you this morning, you need to have your heart ready, because the seed of God's Word can profoundly make your life better. Look at verse 2. It says, I will worship toward thy holy temple, and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy Truth, truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Imagine with me, if you will, that Jesus Christ was going to come down and spend a week on earth. And you found out that he wanted to spend that week with you. He wanted to sleep in your home. He wanted to ride with you in your car. He wanted to come and. And sit in church with you. He wouldn't sit there long as he'd be up here preaching. I'd, you know, we'd, we'd make him get up here and preach. Amen. Uh, but uh, uh, imagine that Jesus wanted to live with you. Wow. This week I had uh, someone in my office and we were talking about some difficult biblical truths and passages. And, and I told him, I said, to be honest, if you ask 15 pastors this question, you're going to get 15 different answers. And I said, you know, it'd be nice is if we could bring Jesus in here and sit him down and just ask him and have him tell us and have him clarify this one issue. You know, I can't think of anyone that I would rather spend a week with, a month with, a day with than Jesus. I can't imagine him living in my home, sitting at my table and eating with me, getting in the car and riding with me to work. Boy, Angela needs something from the store and Jesus hops in the car with me and we ride to the grocery store together to pick up those items. And the fellowship that would get to be so awesome. Can you imagine that? Unfortunately, I don't think Jesus is going to leave heaven and spend a week in your house or my house. But we know that God values His Word above His own name. And He's given you the Bible. And you know what will ride with you home today? Your Bible. You know what can be there at the breakfast table with you tomorrow morning? The Bible. You know what you can do on the way into work tomorrow? You can put on an audio version of the Bible. You know, you you go to the grocery store, you can meditate on the truths found in the Bible. Boy, this seed, the Word of God, is so esteemed that God holds it up above His own name. It is a seed that can come into your heart and revolutionize who you are. But only if your soil is prepared. Only if your heart is right. In this evening's message, we're going to look in depth 
at the fruit that comes off of the tree of a Christian. I hope you'll be there for that. But to this morning, this morning, the challenge to you is this. Is the soil of your heart ready? Is it rich in righteousness and in integrity, in charity, in holiness? Lord, this morning I ask that you take what's been preached and shared. Lord, would you help us all to be honest with ourselves? May we not just come to church and listen to Christian theory. As your half-brother said to the church of Jerusalem in the book of James, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, where you have moved in an individual's heart this morning and shown them that their heart is not right, where there are things that need to change, Lord, would you help that Christian to develop a plan to make those changes happen? Help us, Lord, to be people that have a heart that's prepared for growth. In Jesus' name. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. The altar's open. The piano's playing. How about it this morning, Christian? Is your heart rich? Is the soil of your heart rich? Is it righteous? Is it honest? Is it filled with the